I saw a quote today that says, the Bible's the only book where every time we read it, the author is right beside us. Uh, what, a, what a great quote. We're coming tonight uh, to the same, to, to the continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke and, uh, and the great comfort that we have that the Lord's with us even here, even now, as we walk through that. Luke chapter 5, we looked last week at, uh, we, we closed with a leper who came full of leprosy. And Jesus didn't just heal him from a distance, he reached out his hand and touched this man that more than likely hadn't had a friendly touch in who knows how long. And it's that way that Jesus chose to heal him. And then we come from there to a story of another person who's going to need healing. We're going to begin in Luke 5, 17 tonight. So if you've got your Bible open, that's where we're going to begin. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let, down, uh, let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. I don't know the last time you hosted anybody at your house and it created a tough situation. Uh, I remember when I was a student pastor, I had a middle school girl kick a hole in my wall one time. Uh, that was, I never thought, I, you know what I mean, the boys do that kind of stuff, right? Not the girls. Uh, it was an accident and it was a thin wall, but, uh, but we had a hole in the wall. Imagine having a dinner party where by the time you get done, there's a hole in your roof large enough to lower down somebody on a cot. We don't often think about it, stories from that angle, but what must the homeowner have been thinking that night going, what in the world is going on right now? Already got all these people and now the roof's caving in. What are we going to do here? What an interesting story that Jesus is here as the crowds continue to press on him more and more and he is in a home somewhere, some, you know, some believe it's Simon Peter's home, others just believe it's an unnamed home. But as he's in this home, it's so crowded that no one can get in the door. But these friends have a different idea. I wanted to show you a few ideas of what this might look like, some pictures of homes that are sort of in this uh, you know, realm. This is a reconstruction of a house from a, a little bit before the time of Jesus, but that gives you an idea of the kind of mud uh, roof that would be on some homes. We know that this home had a tile roof. I'll get into that in just a moment, but if you were to be underneath, a lot of times there'd be a multiple layers that might start with branches and sticks and those kind of things, and then we'd be built on with some sort of mud and uh, thatch and, and plants of some kind. Uh, from the outside, it often would look something like this. And we know that this was a person that was fairly well-to-do because they had something that especially in Israel was not incredibly common, and that was tiles 
uh, that would be on the roof. And so tiles that would be put there, not quite as permanent as today's tiles. If you have to remove tile at your house, usually it's going to take a sledgehammer to get it out because it's in there with mortar and, and uh, it's not an easy job to take them off. Uh, you can see that it wasn't quite that tough for the passage that we look at today. They would have been secured with mud and other things. Uh, but another indication of how that might look on a roof is sort of something like this. This is a very old uh, picture. But you can see it would be stacked in such a way where you could, you could remove it if you were able to, to pull things apart. And so from the best we can gather, this is the kind of tile that was on top of a roof that perhaps had some other things uh, in it as well. Uh, but on one of those days as he was teaching, the Bible says there were Pharisees and teachers of the law that had come as well. They're starting to try to figure out who Jesus is and how are we going to feel about him. And the place is so crowded that those who began to bring uh, their mat with their friend on it find that they need uh, to get inside to see him. It, it says that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have power in and of himself, but it means in submission to his Father, he is allowing the Father to work through him, and uh, the Father and Son united are doing things here uh, to, to heal and to be involved in, in drawing people's eyes not only towards the hope of healing, but of who he is. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. If you have a heading in your Bible, more than likely it says, Jesus heals the paralytic or something like that. We often use that word because that's the word used to, to indicate someone who was paralyzed. It may have been from the waist down, but more than likely it was from the neck down. Uh, that this man was, was paralyzed in such a way we aren't told how or why, uh, whether it had been lifelong or, or not, we are not sure. Uh, but this man is going to be lowered down through the roof because of these guys who... Uh, who brought him. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Have you got any friends that will go to the next level for you? Have you got any friends that when they showed up, they wouldn't say, well, guys, let's turn around and go home. Looks like they're full. I, I figured this was going to be a bad idea. That wasn't those friends. They said, you know what? I bet we can dig up that roof and lower him down through there. I mean, that's the kind of friends you want, right? I bet we can make a hole big enough to lower this guy down. Now, I have to wonder how the paralytic thought when he started to think, wait a second, y'all are going to try to lower me down through the roof? You know, how is that? Have you ever had friends who tried to help you and they ended up hurting you? You know, I don't know what he's, I don't know what he's thinking about then, but what a bizarre story in so many ways. We come to this story and perhaps many of us, we are so familiar with it that if we're not careful, we don't, we, 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 we fail to focus on the fact that this is so out of the norm. I don't know how you'd feel if people started ripping up shingles and taking out chainsaws to, you know, get into your roof to lower somebody down. But this is a really strange uh, occurrence that happens, but it's because these guys care so much for their friend. And I, I, I think one of the greatest blessings we can have in life is friends who care uh, for us and go the extra mile. What a tremendous uh, blessing. I have a few points on your page tonight. I have a few more than normal, so we're going to try to get through these fairly quickly so that we can get uh, to our next step here. And so I'm, not, I'm going to try not to focus too long on any one thing, uh, but we see right off the bat that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are there to experience and see who in the world Jesus is and what he's about. And so the first thing I have for you here tonight is that there's a difference between what brings us out and what brings us to true faith. There's a difference between what brings us out and what brings us to true faith. 
that there's always a difference in any church environment, in, in any uh, place where we could be, that just because there might be people present doesn't necessarily mean that those people have trusted and believed in Jesus Christ. And so the Pharisees are present and they are there. For this story, this is about the tamest interaction that Jesus has uh, with some of them because after the miracle, this, this passage in Matthew, Luke, and Mark, there is no objection voiced by the Pharisees yet. It just simply says everyone gave glory to God. But as we walk through the gospel, we will see that just because they continue to be present doesn't mean that they're present in the sense of believing in Jesus. And that's an important distinction, isn't it? Remember what John wrote in 1 John 2, where he's writing about the, just the sad condition of people who seem to walk with the Lord and then walked away, and he says, well, they went out from us because they were not of us. My oldest daughter's been learning about prepositions this week at school, and just sort of, I don't know if I can remember all these prepositions. And I, if I remember right, of is a preposition. Y'all correct me later if I'm not, but don't humiliate me in front of everybody here. But, <laughs> but there's a lot in that one word. They were not of us. They didn't truly belong to Jesus. They didn't truly trust in him. Now there are those who go out from us and the Holy Spirit's work in their hearts because Philippians chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus that the Holy Spirit is going to bring them back. And that's going to show that their faith was real and the Lord was faithful in their life. But there's other times where there's folks who walk away and for all we can tell, for all we know, uh, there was not a real faith that was there. And so there's a difference between what brings us out and what brings us to true faith. And there's going to be a distinction of that constantly in the Gospels, that just because people are around Jesus doesn't mean they believe in Him and they understand uh, Him. The second thing, though, that I've got for you is that God responds to the intercession of others regarding a person in need. God responds to the intercession of others regarding a person in need. Now, when we think of intercession, we often think of the Lord Jesus, and rightly so, that the Lord Jesus is interceding on our behalf. But isn't it great that in a small way, when we ask someone, would you pray for me about this, that we know that God honors not only our prayers, but the intercession of others on our behalf. That's why it's not a fruitless and a useless activity to have people pray for you. And so we have this great blessing that's shown not only in our own church life, but reaching all the way back to the pages of Scripture, that not only the effort that we ourselves place into to seeking the Lord and seeking the Lord's help, but people standing with us in that makes an impact. And we see a powerful way that that happens in this story, because in verse 20, we read this, that after the tiles have been pulled back, after the homeowner has called out, you're going to pay for that. And this man gets lowered down into the middle of the, the scene there. And people who are already packed tightly together begin to try to back up to let this man through. That we read this in verse 20. And when he, Jesus, saw their faith. Not simply the man who was lowered down, but all of them collectively. Isn't it a wonderful thing that when people stand with us in seeking the Lord and come to Him on our behalf, that there's times where we don't have enough in, in us to be honored, but God honors the faithfulness of people who love us and pray for us and seek to go to the Lord on our behalf. I don't know about you, but that's tremendously hopeful for me. 
that I don't, I don't often have the right, you know, the right every words to say. I don't have the right, you know, stance and attitude to bring before the Lord. But what a blessing to have folks who will pray for me. And in the sense, in the midst of that, that God can honor that. When he saw their faith, and I think that means also the paralyzed man. He wasn't out of the equation there, but he's part of the group. That all of them were united in showing their faith to the Lord Jesus. And he honors that based on what all of them have done. And he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Wow. What an incredible statement to make. And I don't think anybody in that room was expecting that at that moment. In all the chaos of what had just happened, nobody's thinking about forgiveness of sins, right? This is a paralyzed man. But Jesus knows what he's doing, doesn't he? Because all of a sudden, he knows the wheels start to turn in the minds of those people who were there. Your sins are forgiven. You can't say your sins are forgiven. Some of y'all have been in Southern Baptist life for a while. I've been in Southern Baptist life for a while. You sort of know there's a few things that if I was to say certain catchphrases or certain words that, you know, are sort of out of the fold of Southern Baptist life, there might be people who go, wait a second, we're Southern Baptists. We don't, we don't talk like that or we don't think like that. And in a lot of those ways, you'd be right. But there's, there's ways in which Jesus knew when he said that, not only was he honoring the faith of those men, not only was he forgiving the sins of that man, but he knew in the minds of the Pharisees and the chief uh, teachers of the law that, uh, that they were going to begin to think, he can't do that. What kind of blasphemy is this, we see? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Number three, Jesus heals this man not only because of his compassion for him and in recognition of all of their faith, but to show his authority as the Son of Man. But to show his authority as the Son of Man. You remember in John 11 where Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb And after he's done weeping for the friend that he loves so much, even though he's going to raise him from the dead in 10 minutes, he weeps that beautiful verse that we read there, the shortest verse in the English Bible, Jesus wept. And he stands in front of Lazarus' tomb and he begins to pray after the stone's been rolled away and after everybody's there saying, what in the world is going on? And he begins to pray and he says something like this, Father, I thank you that you hear me and I know that you always hear me, but I have said this so that those who are here will believe that you sent me. That Lazarus was raised from the dead in order that people might believe and know who Jesus was. This man, not only in his difficulty, but in his healing, in his sins being forgiven, part of what Jesus was doing in that was showing his authority as the Son of Man. Now, Jesus didn't choose to call himself the Son of God in front of other people because he knew that they would misunderstand that and there would be too much explaining to do. He didn't even refer to himself very often as the Messiah. He agreed with people who otherwise, who made that declaration themselves at times, but he was careful not to use that term because people misunderstood it. Often, especially in Luke's gospel, we see him quoted as the Son of Man. And we read that even as a title that reaches back to the book of Daniel, that Jesus is fulfilling uh, all of this, but he's showing his authority to forgive sins. And then he asks this question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Now he asks that question because he knows that the logical, perhaps quick answer that we would give would be to say, well, obviously anybody can just say your sins are forgiven, but there's no proof of that. But 
if you tell this guy to get up and walk, that's going to be even more impressive. I mean, that seems to be, okay, then you're not joking. You're showing us incre something incredible, Jesus, if that's what happens. And that's, that's Jesus' logic in making that statement. And yet at the same time, the, the overarching theme that we'll see when we keep going is, uh, is what I've got here. Uh, let's see, I've got it somewhere. Uh, da, 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 da. Maybe I didn't write it down because I was running out of points, but let me say this to you. You know what is even more majestic than Jesus causing somebody to walk who couldn't walk? The forgiveness of our sins. Amen. You say, well, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or, or to say rise and take up your mat and walk? Well, it's easier to say rise and take up your mat and walk for the Lord Jesus because in order to ultimately say that our sins are forgiven, it was going to take him to Calvary. That to do that was a path of difficulty like nothing we can imagine. And so in that, Jesus, at the same time that he makes this statement, knowing how people are going to react, is, is foreshadowing the reality that our sins are more difficult to forgive than it is to make a paralyzed man walk. Now, if we walk in here to, together tonight and come out with that message, that should give you hope like nothing else. That our sins are incredibly difficult to forgive, but we serve the Savior who's all-powerful. Good, good Savior and a good, good Father. And so Jesus heals this man, not only because of his compassion, but to show his authority. Number four, in Mark 2, Matthew 9, as well as here in Luke 5, we see the reaction of the people is amazement and giving glory to God. Jesus says, I say to you, rise. And the man rises up. That his act of faith, his act of obedience shown is to actually get up and walk. I don't know whether this was the first time he'd ever walked, if he was paralyzed in an accident, if he'd been paralyzed from birth, but all of that happens immediately, and uh, he's able to get up and to move and to walk. He rose up before them, picked up what, had been lying, what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. That was enough to make, you know, if he was a Baptist, that made him Bapticostal just a little bit. <laughs> he got excited. He went home glorifying God. We, we looked at that word glory a couple weeks ago. We're going to see that again and again, that people's eyes and attention continue to shift more and more to the Lord Jesus, that glory is turning our attention and our uh, uh, focus away from ourselves and away from things that don't matter and turning those to the Lord Jesus. And so he went home glorifying God. Verse 26, and amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. I forget whether it's Matthew or Mark, but one of them says that the way that one of the words is translated is even fear. Kind of like when the storm calmed for the disciples, it says that they were afraid because all of a sudden they were in the presence of Almighty God, working, at, for what they understand, perhaps only working through a great man, but they are in the presence of something so divine that they're moved to fear to say, what in the world just happened here? I don't even know how to process what we've just seen. But in that, they came to amazement. They came to joy. They glorified God. We've seen extraordinary things today. That's a church service you go home and remember the rest of your life, right? A lot of times, the only things we remember are times when stuff goes wrong in church, right? So, well, that was the day that so-and-so fell over out of the pew or whatever it might be. But, uh, but often, hopefully, I hope you've got some stories too where you say this is the day where God did something special in my heart or I saw God do something special in the heart of somebody else. We have these times where we, meaningful times, but imagine what it was like the rest of their lives to look back on the day that the roof caved in and somebody got lowered down and it became the best day they'd ever had. 
For the homeowner, I have a feeling he wasn't too worried about putting those tiles back on after this took place, and probably some people even helped him. And uh, we come then to a story that's coupled in Matthew, Mark, and Luke right after the story that we read. So in every gospel, we read Levi or Matthew's call in the same place uh, that, that follows immediately after this, this paralytic. Not, the gospels aren't always written chronologically. And so at times they're arranged in different ways, but there seems to be a connection between these two stories uh, in a mighty way. I wanted to show you this. This is a tax receipt from the time of Jesus. Imagine having to carry home a piece of stone that says you paid your taxes. Some of you got filing cabinets that are busting over with previous year's taxes. Imagine trying to keep the stones laying around to prove to people that you paid what you were supposed to pay or a piece of pottery, whatever this is. Uh, this is actually from Egypt, but it would have been a very similar system being that close uh, in proximity. It's from the year uh, 21 AD, I believe. It's in a museum in Chicago. Uh, but uh, this would have been, as a, as a fellow Roman area, that, that this would have been very similar to what was there in that time. We're going to read about Levi, who's a tax collector. Any of you who have been in church longer than six months probably have come across a story of a tax collector not looking too good in the Bible, uh, that they're not spoken of in great renown. And you, uh, this is a, an image from that time period of a tax collector and his assistant taking in the taxes. You remember what kind of thoughts were had about tax collectors, that they would try to rip people off, that they could make more money by taking in more taxes than they were supposed to take, and so they had this kind of, you know, bad, bad look. When you look at that picture, I don't know what it might remind you of with a guy sitting there with a big pile of coins on the desk and another man who's helping him out. This is what it reminded me of. <laughs> Christmas time, Ebenezer Scrooge. These are a few guys that have played uh, different versions of, of Ebenezer Scrooge. For my money, the guy on the top left, Alistair Sim, is the best. Uh, but everybody's got their own opinion of who really plays uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. But Matthew is uh, in this, this job, this line of work where he's perhaps very well paid, but he's probably not very well liked, especially by his own people. And he has the name not only of Matthew that we see, but also the name Levi, which is given to him here. Uh, he's referred to as Matthew in Matthew's gospel and not uncommon for guys to be referred to by two different names. But Levi even indicates there's some attachment here with the priestly line. And so for that family who's used to having priests that then has a tax collector, boy, what that must have been like on the holidays to go back home. And Levi probably found himself as the odd man out until the bill came at the restaurant and they said, well, you're the tax collector. You're the one that needs to pay for it. But Matthew, uh, Matthew slash Levi is sitting at the booth where he meets Jesus today. So let's look there, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Moving quickly through this, I've mentioned already for number five, Matthew, Levi's story is placed after the paralytic in, in each of those gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And perhaps that shows something about the connection between Jesus' rescue of him and how powerless all of us are before Jesus calls us. 
What ability did the paralytic have for his own rescue and his own healing? Absolutely nothing. You know, when the Bible talks about us before coming to faith in Christ, it talks about us being dead in our sins. Uh, Saturday, when I was here with the life group leaders, there was one life group leader that mentioned their favorite movie is an old movie called The Princess Bride, if you've ever seen that. I think Billy Crystal plays a role in that movie as kind of this strange doctor. Uh, but there's one point where they're trying to determine where, whether the main character is dead or not. And he says, well, no, he's not dead. He's just mostly dead. <laughs> How can you be mostly dead? You're never, you're never partially dead. You're, you're either dead or you're alive. And so when the Bible talks about us being dead in our transgressions, what does that mean? It means we needed complete rescue. And so for Matthew sitting at the tax collector booth, for the paralytic lowered down through the ceiling, uh, they needed the complete rescue and call uh, of Jesus in their life. You know, the same's true for us. If we look backwards, if you're here tonight and you've trusted in Christ and you look back on your life, you're going to over time see more and more that it was Jesus and it was Jesus and it was Jesus and it was Jesus and it was less you and it was less you than you ever thought. And so we see that here with Matthew as well. And number six, when Matthew begins to follow Jesus, he's just foolish enough to believe that all of his friends need to hear about Jesus as well. He's just foolish enough to think that you invite tax collectors to a religious meeting. He's just foolish enough to think that these people who are categorized as sinners by the Pharisees should be allowed to come close to Jesus. Imagine the madness of thinking that. You know, sometimes the best evangelists in a church environment are people who've just come to faith in Christ because they haven't gotten into this culture yet of us thinking, well, you know, other people don't want to hear that. So Matthew says, boy, this is the greatest thing I've ever experienced. I got to tell everybody else. And all of a sudden, a house full of tax collectors is listening to Jesus reclining at table and eating with him. But of course the Pharisees, they don't feel too good about that, right? They grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Number seven, Jesus was willing to cross paths with people who needed salvation. He didn't leave them as they were, but knew that a doctor's call is to sick people. Imagine a doctor's office that had a sign out front that said, such and such doctor's office, if you're sick, please don't come in. No sick people allowed. It's a conundrum to say that somehow there would be a doctor's office and, and there would not be sick people. And so Jesus makes that same statement that the people that he has come for are not only those who are sick, but those who realize that they're sick because the Pharisees don't have that realization because they're talking about other people as sinners and not themselves in need. You know, there's this sentiment today by some who would say that what Jesus really did was he came in to sort of help everybody know that there's nothing wrong with them and they should just keep on doing whatever they're doing. So whether they're a sinner, tax collector, uh, whether they're whatever category they would fit in, just kind of be happy, love them and leave them as they are. We don't see that in the gospels. Jesus never leaves people as they were, but he goes to people where they are. And in that, we see Jesus' love to come and to meet people. We don't ever see Jesus turn down an invitation that I'm aware of in the Gospels by saying, well, just it's not going to be my kind of people there. Not, not interested in that. So whether he was eating at the house of a Pharisee, whether he was eating at the house of a tax collector, he was there for those who could hear the truth and respond. 
Jesus was willing to cross paths with people who needed salvation. As Christians who are part of God's church, we need to be willing to cross paths with people who need salvation. And sometimes the biggest mistake that we make is not our lack of care or our lack of, you know, concern over people, but if we're not careful, we can get insulated real quick, can't we? And we don't have those path crossings with people who need the gospel. Uh, Jesus' life is a reminder to us that we need to be okay uh, crossing path, even if it makes some people think, what in the world are you doing hanging out with them? Well, I'm just doing what Jesus did. They need Jesus. We come to the last passage. Verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And so a passage with some information and then a warning at the end, uh, we see that uh, Matthew makes a feast for the, I meant to show you this, this is what the food may have looked like, you know, for, it it wasn't burgers and fries, it was uh, other things, perhaps like this. And then this is a picture from an American colony in Israel back before Israel was uh, a nation. I believe this was the 1920s. Uh, but people who were still at that point sewing patches of cloth. Some of us grew up and we had patches of cloth. I don't think I had a pair of jeans growing up that didn't have patches on the knees. And, uh, and so we, we know what that's like, don't we? So if you've never gotten to have that, maybe someday you'll get to have a, a patch of clothing. But if you have a kind of material that shrinks over time and you have something, you know, after you've already washed it, 150 times and then you try to sew something new on there, it's not going to last after you get, uh, get it washed and dried. It's going to start shrinking or, or doing other things to, to not work. So you can't take something new and try to just place it on top of the foundation of something else. Jesus says you can't pour new wine into old wineskins. Here's a picture of a wineskin. I don't know about you, but that looks shot to me. I don't think I want to drink anything out of there. And I'm pretty sure you pour something in there, it's going to leak. We're, we live in a day and age of plastic bottles, and we sort of don't think through this kind of mindset, but you sometimes get one shot with these kind of things, and you, you can't pour something in after you've already used it once. And so Jesus says, you're not going to take who he is, his message, uh, his character, and somehow make it fit into the system that was already there in that day. Did you know that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had so many rules that the only way you could keep them all was to be full-time employed as a Pharisee or the teacher of the law? You imagine, some of you think it's hard being a Baptist. Imagine being a Pharisee. You say, boy, how, how in the world, you know, would I keep up with all this? They had all these rules for what you could do on different days of the week and how you could do this and how you could do that. And regular people just couldn't keep up with all of it. It was just such a burden. And so when Jesus comes in, he's not trying to add himself to the mix of all of that. He said, no, all that's got to get thrown out. We've got to move back to what the Bible actually says. We've got to move to a relationship with the Lord being a comfort and a rest and not a burden 
and an obligation and impossibility. Then he makes this statement in verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Now this one's inverted from some of the other things he said. And the reason for that, I believe, is he says, you know, even as I make this declaration that you can't put the new into the old and you can't take Jesus and somehow fit him onto a foundation of something else, we also have this tug on the inside of us that just says it's easier to stay just like we are. It's easier to keep doing things in perhaps the mindsets that wouldn't agree with Christ. For those who don't know Jesus, it's easier to stay without Jesus than sometimes it is to trust him. For those who are bogged down in religion or bogged down in in formality or bogged down in some other way, it's easier to stay there than it is to say, you know what, it's going to take a change. It's going to take submitting to something new, someone new. The last point I have for you tonight, number eight, Jesus doesn't fit into our systems and agendas. We got to throw those out to walk with him. Jesus doesn't fit into our systems and agendas. We got to throw those out to walk with him. In the Old Testament, there's this great story of King Hezekiah coming to power. And when he comes to power, you remember he's one of the good kings in uh, in Judah. And when he comes to power, he begins to break down and to bust up the idols that people had been worshiping. You can sort of imagine the people who are faithful to the Lord and they're saying, yes, Get it, Hezekiah. We've been waiting for somebody to take a sledgehammer to these things for so long. Then all of a sudden, Hezekiah takes something else. He takes the bronze serpent that Moses used in the wilderness that God called him to make that serpent whenever people were dying from snake bites. This great memory of what God had done in the past. And he set it down on the ground and he began to take that sledgehammer to that bronze serpent too. You can kind of imagine all those religious people right in that moment going, wait, 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 wait. We didn't know you were going to do that. But when you read on in the text, it says the people had started to worship that serpent instead of the Lord. That what God had used in the past became an idol. And before long, it was an obstacle to God himself. And so for us as people as well, we've got to constantly be looking, Jesus, what do you need to clear out, clean out, move out in my life so that I can walk with where you want to lead and not just where I think it's just natural and easy and perhaps what I've always done. We need to be on the lookout for where God's calling us and where Jesus is asking us to go and follow him there. Would you pray with me tonight? Father, thank you for your word. May we look towards the Lord Jesus' impact and work in our life and in our hearts in a special way. Lord, may we not be the ones trying to to pour Jesus into old wineskins and sew him on to, to old cloths. But Lord, may we submit to him as the author and the founder and the finisher of our faith. And may we look to your purposes and your plan, uh, Lord, even when it's challenging. And so, Father, just like Matthew, who needed rescue, may we be people who, like Jesus, want to cross paths with those who need your truth. And Father, like the paralytic who, because of his friends, found help and found rescue. Lord, may we be faithful friends to those who need us. And Father, may you encourage and uh, and strengthen us with friends who are bringing us closer to you as well. So Father, for all these things, we thank you. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.